Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 249, we are exploring the topic of Bitcoin patents and how to defend Bitcoin against these potential kinds of attacks from patent trolls. Joining me today are Stefan Kinsella, past guest on the show, and Jed Grant of Open Crypto Alliance. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the fastest way from zero to Bitcoin. They've got easy sign up. They've got no altcoins. It's really cheap. They're available in all states in the US. A common way people get started is by establishing their initial position with a one-time buy and then start dollar cost averaging with automatic recurring buys. Swan Bitcoin was built to do just this. You create a recurring purchase plan like $100 a week or $20 a day. You can use bank wires for larger amounts or ACH transfers for smaller one-time buys. Swan is the best place to send your friends and family when they're ready to start buying Bitcoin. Send them to swanbitcoin.com slash levera and Swan will drop $10 of free Bitcoin in their account when they become a member. Are you thinking about your Bitcoin security? Consider Unchained Capital, building Bitcoin-native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. You can create a multi-signature vault designed for ultra-secure long-term storage with no setup or storage fees if you build it on your own. If you want the white glove treatment though, their team will teach you about multi-signature. This is the concierge service. They'll ship you some hardware wallets, they'll answer your questions and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. Use the code LEVERA and you get $50 off there. Unchained also offer an OTC desk and Unchained are a great option for those of you looking for a self-directed Bitcoin retirement account or if you're a company looking to move Bitcoin to treasury. They offer advanced business accounts with a whole range of features. Go and find out more at unchained-capital.com. Compass is an online marketplace which makes it easier for everyone to mine Bitcoin and enhance the Bitcoin network's security. The anti-cloud mining option, Compass helps you buy your own ASIC and secure hosting at great facilities around the world. For years, we have all heard that mining is only profitable if you're investing tons of money. But now, with Compass, everyone is able to tap into economies of scale and access reasonably priced hardware and cheap industrial power rates. And if you're unsure about how to get started with mining Bitcoin, Compass offers hardware and hosting bundles which which eliminates the need for advanced technical knowledge and allows you to quickly get started mining Bitcoin with hardware you own. Visit them at minewithcompass.com and start mining Bitcoin today. Stefan and Jed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Stefan. So today we're going to talk a little bit about intellectual property and what it means in terms of Bitcoin and property rights as well, um, as I think many listeners of the show are libertarians themselves, um, but not all of them. And so I think it might be good. Well, firstly, uh, let's talk, let's hear a little bit about uh, from each of you, uh, just a little bit on your background. Uh, Jed, if you wanted to start. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm a technologist. I've been in tech, um, well, since the 80s when I got my hands on an Apple II and, and started writing code. Um, I've, I've always been interested by cryptography, somewhat of a cypherpunk, ended up at, at NATO uh, running their um, deployment of TCP IP in the 90s and have been, been an entrepreneur for the last 20, 22 years, more or less, um, and focused on, on security and, and crypto and technology in that space. So, so Bitcoin is something that I've been following since basically when, when the white paper came out as a novelty. And um, really like the tech and want to see it change the world. So that's sort of my focus. For my professional side, I run a company called KYC3. And I, I set out to change the way we do KYC because it's fundamentally broken. So 
somewhat similar to, to what Stefan's going to say. I'm not a lawyer, but but I'm a KYC guy, but I'm anti-KYC. So there you have it. Interesting. And uh, Stefan, just for listeners who maybe they haven't heard you before, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm a patent attorney in Houston and uh, Texas. I'm from Louisiana originally, and I'm a libertarian and uh, been interested in libertarian theory and, and intellectual property stuff for a long time now. And uh, got interested in Bitcoin when it came out and uh, started buying it when I lost a bet to BJ Boyapati because I thought in 2012 that the government would kill it. <laughs> um, so I lost that bet. Had to buy some Bitcoins to pay them off, so I bought some for me at the same time. So uh, those Bitcoins are now worth 90000 or no, $120,000 that I gave them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Uh, VJ, our, our mutual friend, he's a regular guest on my show. Um, and for listeners who aren't familiar, Stefan is a really leading thinker in the libertarian world, uh, especially in the areas of intellectual property and also just generally in terms of uh, private property theory uh, and uh, explaining some of the thought of uh, some of the leading lights of the Austrian libertarian world, such as Hans Hopper and others. Um, I think maybe we, we can start there as well, because I think for some people, they might not be as familiar with the, this way of thinking and they might be thinking well hang on i thought you know these people put in work to create intellectual property so why shouldn't that also be respected as a quote-unquote you know private property right why is that not correct right and i guess i thought that too at first uh, like most people do um i mean i come at it from a private property point of view i favor free markets and private property and individual liberty uh capitalism and all that and i still am and innovation and technology and you know, you hear about this thing called intellectual property, which includes mainly patent and copyright, which covers inventions and artistic works. Um, and you just assume that, well, it's another type of property right, so it's part of capitalism. But the more I studied the issue and when I started practicing, practicing it in the early 90s as a lawyer, I started looking into it more closely, understanding the legal system and then understanding uh, libertarian and, and economic arguments about it more deeply. I came to the conclusion that um, you know the systems are completely antithetical to private property and free markets and competition and should be abolished. And I, and I mean completely. I think the patent system and the copyright system are completely unjustified and do tons of harm in the world, especially the patent system. Um, basically, it gives people a monopoly from the government, which allows them to prevent people from competing with them. And that's anti-competitive and against the free market and violates their property right. Um, in particular, the patent system um, allows you to get a, a license from the government to sell your product that you, that you claim to have come up with on your own um, for about 17 years without anyone competing with you on that. Um, so it, it delays innovation because other people don't bother to innovate if they can't sell a product that's like yours. So it slows down innovation, and it lets you rest on your laurels and connect monopoly profits because you're the only guy who can sell this thing. So the standard arguments for it that you need it to incentivize innovation are all flawed. There's no empirical research for it. And in fact, that way of thinking about it is confused because the purpose of law is not to have the government come in and twiddle the levers in the market and optimize things that are broken. Um, like that's the market failure idea of the Chicago school, which I don't believe in. Um, and I don't think the government is really, their goal is to do that and they're not equipped to do it. And the patent law system won't do that anyway. Um, all it does is help monopolies grow larger and help cartels and oligopolies form. Right. And so 
some might believe that, oh, this business model, it requires intellectual property for it to be viable. And without that, these businesses would just not work. And maybe they would say, oh, music or art or maybe writers. And But fundamentally, it comes back to, as you were saying, it's about private property rights and the need for private property rights to be granted or issued only in things that are scarce, like rivalrous. And I guess, as you're saying, if you or if the government grants somebody an intellectual property right, then in some way, shape or form, they are giving some people the right to control what other people do with their own private property, whether that be their own piece of paper that they are writing down a poem or whatever, or their own computer, right? And so that you are giving some people the right to control other people's computers, but we are just in some sense using the guns of the government to enforce that. And that is anti-private property rights. Yeah, and there are definitely some business models that uh, won't work without IP, such as the business model of being a patent attorney. Uh, <laughs> just like <laughs> just like without a tax system, there wouldn't be tax attorneys and uh, those types of CPAs. And without a drug war, there wouldn't be defense attorneys making money defending people uh, who are facing prison time for doing something that's a victimless crime. And there are probably some business models in 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 you know the regular business world that would have a tough time making it without IP law. But by the same token, nothing is for free. So if you make something easier, you're taking it away from something else. And so other business models are, you know, the seen and the unseen by Bastiat. We see that some companies claim to make profits from their copyrights and their patents, but that's at the expense of innovations and creativity that's suppressed in the hands of other people by by virtue of these laws. So from the empirical point of view, people that just have this thing like you need it, well, we're just used to it. We're used to these laws. So it's hard to imagine what it's like, what it will be like to have a fully free market, just like in most countries outside the US who are used to socialized medicine, they're used to thinking of medicine as something the government provides and they they can't imagine what it would be like to live in a free market healthcare. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't move in that direction. For anyone interested in looking into this further, there's a ton of resources on my site, C4, the number four, SIF.org. And uh, you can find there, let's say, a link to Boldrin and Levine's book, Against Intellectual Monopoly, which just goes in detail over the empirical arguments given in favor of patent and copyright and shows how each one of them are just flawed and wrong. Yeah, that's excellent. And for listeners, I would echo that. So definitely go and read Stefan Kinsella's uh, Against uh, Intellectual Property. Um, and also that Michelle and uh, uh, Baldrin book, where basically there are many examples of how society has been slowed down. The progress of society has been slowed down. Arguably, the Industrial Revolution was delayed by, I believe, 18 years. And that's the example from the first chapter in that book. So it's a really great example. Actually, I'm curious if you guys have any other examples of where progress of society has been halted by these kinds of intellectual property rights or patents in one specific example. Well, Schnorr signatures in Bitcoin have been pre prevented by IP right. The patent on that was uh, delayed the implementation of Schnorr signatures for 17 years. So we're only now going to get them in Taproot, but they should have been in Bitcoin from day one. There you go. Uh, and uh, any other examples from your side, Stefan, in terms of uh, progress being delayed? Well, there's lots of pharmaceutical uh, drugs, for example, that uh, are in limited supply quite often. And uh, some people actually die because they can't get it because it's only one manufacturer and they don't make enough and no one else can, can come in and compete. Lots of examples like that. I think one of the examples that Bolger and Levine give in, in, in their book is uh, because of the, all the patents on the airplane in the U.S. from the Wright brothers and others, the entire uh, airplane industry was ground to a halt. And uh, when World War I started, the whole industry had to move to France and other places to get airplanes 
airplane. So it retarded the entire uh, aviation industry in the U.S. for, for a good generation. Yeah. And I think, I guess, while we're still on this idea of intellectual property being anti-liberty, I think another interesting idea is just that we're li- we're moving into a world where some of these things aren't really enforceable anyway, in some cases, where it maybe it's music, it's like how famously, you know, RIAA and MPAA were going after, you know, the file sharing, but they weren't able, ultimately, they weren't able to stop it. And so they had to adapt. And so in some ways, the business model for some, some businesses became more about we're living in this world of massive abundance and there's so much music and so much writing out there now it's more about how do you get out of obscurity wouldn't you say yeah and uh i mean of course music has transformed as piracy and copying and streaming of music has risen to the fore with the internet old business models of selling cds collapse not just because of piracy but because people don't really want to own music anymore they just want to stream it so yeah a lot of musicians now make money by touring and selling merchandise and things like that so um copyright and patent are both unnatural interventions into the free market but luckily technology is emerging to help us get around those laws so i think the, the internet which is a huge copying machine, along with encryption and torrenting and things like that, has basically made copyright almost unenforceable. So piracy is rampant, which is a good thing, I would, I, would, I think. Patents, I think that um, something like that may happen in the future when 3D printing matures. And I mean, a long time down the road where you can you know, print your own car or iPhone with a 3D printer. When you can start doing sophisticated and expensive and you know uh, advanced machines and things like that with printer in your basement, then the patent holders won't be able to stop that either. So the laws will never perish because the special interests are too entrenched and stop it and always try to ratchet the laws up and make them worse. But luckily, technology is allowing us a way to evade those two regimes. And in other ways, too. Right. And that's a really good point. There's a project that uh, I believe is being done at MIT. Um, I need to find the reference back. But a couple guys wrote an algorithm to generate every possible melody on the normal musical scale and to put that in the public domain so that musicians couldn't sue each other over a, a simple melody. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how does the whole idea of things being in the public domain versus being quote unquote owned by certain people who have this who have the right for it? Because as I understand, the other thing you hear is that some of these big companies like Disney or whatever will go out and keep trying to extend the time period so that their work does not go out into the open public domain. Could you just explain that dynamic for us? Yeah, so the original in the US, which sort of has the, the first modern set of copyright and patent laws uh, in Inspired by the British and or the the, uh, the English system, so the patent system kind of emerged from the practice in England and in Europe of of, of kings granting monopolies to their cronies. And it was uh, refined in England with the Statute of Monopolies in 1623. Copyright emerged from the attempt of the government to censor all what could be printed through the stationer's company and then the Statute of Anne in 1709. And then the U.S. you know, adopted something similar to that in a more modern version in 1789 with the country. The original terms were about 14 years. And the idea was some artisan needs protection from his own apprentices for about two apprentice terms, which is seven years time. So pick 14 years randomly and arbitrarily. Over time, because of lobbying by owners of copyright that were about to expire and enter the public domain, uh, the copyright term kept getting extended over and over and over again. The classic example is Disney trying to keep Mickey Mouse from falling into the public domain. So 20 years keep getting added on here and there um, to the point to where from 14 years extendable once for 14 years to 28 years maximum, the copyright term is now the life of the author plus 70 years, which is well over a century in most cases. So 130, 140 years in a lot of cases. 
Um, so it's just basically infinite at this point. And in many cases, it, depending on who you look at and what arguments you're reading, sometimes you'll see people who try to argue that, oh, it should be moderated back or in some way it should be, they, they, they're not in favor of fully abolishing government intellectual property. Rather, they try to moderate it back a little bit and they, they sort of feed it like it's something that where you have to try to balance the interests and so on. Why should we go the whole way? Why should we abolish government intellectual property rights? It, hypothetically, if we, if we were able to do so, why should we do that? Well, I mean, to me, it's like saying uh, if poison is bad, why not just take a little bit? I mean, it's it's just in principle, it's a bad thing. It doesn't do any good. It violates property rights. Uh, some people say don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But my retort is always unless it's Rosemary's baby. You know, it's the spawn of Satan. Uh, so I, <laughs> it was a mistake. It didn't have as much of a negative effect before the Internet, I believe, and for the modern technology age because it was sort of a background thing. It, it probably impeded innovation to some degree. But with the Internet, uh, copyright censors speech a lot. I mean, it's used as an excuse to limit freedom on the internet. You know, you have YouTube takedowns happen all the time for sensorial purposes. And with the speed of innovation now and, and with, with digital technology, the patent system is posing a, a greater and greater threat to innovation as well. So it's an even bigger threat than it used to be, I believe. All right. So let's bring it to the Bitcoin world uh, and OCA. So uh, perhaps, Jed, do you want to just give us a bit of an overview? What is OCA? Sure. Open Crypto Alliance is a nonprofit effort. Um, a few of us have, have started in the last uh, two months. Uh, the objective is to keep the technology behind Bitcoin and blockchain in general open and free as much as possible and to prevent uh, patents from being granted on, on the technology, especially patents that are pirating. So they're taking existing open source technology and applying for patents on it. People are doing this, trying to patent ideas that are not original, not their own, this type of thing. So there are a number of efforts efforts to prevent patent abuse and patents from hindering innovation in the space. Um, there's COPA, which actually, as of today, I believe we're in touch with. And there's Lot Network, which is License on Transfer. Uh, those are both organizations that help patent holders not to sue each other or to be sued. Uh, but our approach is a bit different. We don't want to hold any patents. We're not trying to create a patent pool or anything like that. Our objective is to raise funds and use those funds to simply fight against patents that are in the filing process process in order to keep that technology in the public domain as much as possible. Right. And so that's probably the key difference there where, um, so now listeners from my prior episode with Steve Lee from Square Crypto, we spoke about COPA. And so as I understand you guys, Jed and Stefan, it's it's sort of like COPA is a way of pooling some resources and putting them into a, if you will, a defensive pool such that the members don't go after each other or that if members have contributed any of their pat their IP into COPA, then it's kind of, it's kind of accepted that you're not going to be attacked for using that. It's a defensive thing. Whereas what OCA is doing different is more like essentially trying to stop the creation of these kind of maliciously uh, people who are trying to apply for these patents. And essentially there's kind of this gears turning of bureaucracy and the cost associated with defending yourself uh, can be quite high. And so that's why you're trying to, in some sense, nip it in the bud before it before the cost gets high. Absolutely. Um, that is that is a core element. I mean, the cost to stop a patent from being granted is significantly lower than the damage that patent could cause once granted. And and um, the people that are going to use these patents to attack businesses are going to you know try to attack multiple businesses with them. They're going to wait until businesses are somewhat successful, and they're going to try to milk that business for a long time. So if we can, with a small one-time effort, uh, stop some of these patents, and it's also a timing effort in that respect, because you know in the 
last two years, um, we've had over 10,000 patents per year filed on blockchain and, and crypto technology. Up up to that point, there were a few hundred per year. I think there were there were uh, over a thousand in 2018. But 2019 is when it really went kaboom. And a lot of these patents are now just winding through the system. And so now is the time to stand up and go through these and, and hopefully stop the most egregious ones so that we can prevent them from doing damage in the future. And if you if you want to... Yeah, maybe I was going to say, maybe I can explain a little bit about how the how the patent system kind of works in this regard and distinguish patent trolls and these other things and our model from what the other uh, groups are trying to do. Like, as you said, Jed, they're trying to arrange it so that the members of these of these groups don't sue each other, right? And maybe amass patents that each other can borrow and use for defensive purposes. One problem with that is that once you're in that pool, you have less of an incentive to acquire patent in the first place because you're not going to use it offensively. So the, the number of patents produced, which you could use later for defensive reasons, would be diminished. But also, one reason companies acquire patents, even if they don't want to use them aggressively or to shake down other people, is they acquire them as defensive weapons to use as a threat to keep their competitors from suing them. So if my competitor sues me for patent infringement and they know I have a lot of patents on the same space, I could counter sue them and they might not sue me in the first place. They might go after some some smaller company, some startup. One problem with this is that a lot of patents are held not by competitors who are practicing or making products covered by their patents and maybe by their competitors' patents, but they're called patent trolls. And these are people that are, or they're called non-practicing entities. So they just buy up patents from someone else or they just file patent applications um, without ever making a product is covered by their patents or by anyone's patents. So if they sue you, they want a cut of your action and you can't counter sue them because they're not doing anything that you can sue them for. So you're sort of defenseless against patent trolls. So the biggest uh, defense against those types of threats is to try to invalidate their patents from the get-go to to basically show that their patents are toothless or to have them thrown out or not even granted in the first place. And so the way the process works is you file a patent application and it has to be examined by a patent office. And that usually takes a year or two or three. During that process, at a certain point in time, it becomes public and other people can submit prior art and try to tell the examiner or the patent office, hey, consider this prior art before you grant this patent. You probably shouldn't grant the patent because this, this patent application is obvious in view of what was already known or it was already being used, right? So it's, it's not a new innovation. Or once it's granted, there's a limited time window, you can still oppose it. So it's important to get these guys early on in the process to try to uh, take them out of the armory of the potential patent troll and patent pirate threats to the Bitcoin ecosystem. Back to the show in a moment after a word for the sponsors. Lend at HODL HODL is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend and borrow anonymously on your own terms. So this is a peer-to-peer lending solution using multi-sig escrow. So if you have Bitcoin and you need liquidity, or if you would like to purchase more Bitcoin using a loan, this is one possible way to do that without selling your Bitcoins and incurring a capital gains event. On the other hand, if you have stablecoins, and you want to earn interest, well, you can go and create an offer and earn interest on that by lending at HODL HODL. So with this platform, you set your own terms and you put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and the interest rate. Go check it out at lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you thinking about your Bitcoin backups? Cyphersafe.io are producing metal backup seed products like the Cypher Wheel. They've got a product called the Bitcoin Recovery Tag that actually helps with recovery also. This is an extra stainless steel tag with info like the original wallet, the derivation types, the scripts used. 
Major hardware wallets all have their own type of recovery tag specifying data for that hardware wallet type. You attach this to your SeedWord backup with the stainless steel cable included, and it even has a website link for recovery, so you or your heirs can recover those coins using Electrum, so it can help you or your heirs recover in practice. Now, this tag works with any SeedWord backup device, not just the Cypher wheel, so you can go and check this out at cyphersafe.io. Use the code LEVERA for a discount. If you're looking for a Bitcoin hardware wallet, my favorite is the cold card, and this is one of the most recommended hardware wallets by Bitcoiners. It has a range of awesome features, like the ability to use it completely air-gapped. You literally never have to plug it into a computer. You can plug it to the wall or use a phone power bank, and you initialize it and then shuttle that over to popular wallets like Spectre Desktop, Electrum, or Blue Wallet to do air-gapped transactions. I've long been a fan of this wallet. It offers very high security at a relatively low price point. There's all sorts of features like PSBT support, an address explorer, you can use passphrases, anti-phishing words, and it is Bitcoin only. Go get yours at coinkite.com and use the code LEVERA for a discount. Back to the show. I see. And so in some sense, we could say it's like by showing prior art, you're able to help stop the creation of these overly broad patents that can be used by these more malicious patent troll or non-practicing entities, right? That's exactly what we want to do. To get a patent, you're supposed to have four things. It's to have utility or usefulness. So you're not supposed to be able to get a patent on something that can't work like a perpetual motion machine or something that's totally destructive. Like if you came up with, with a bomb that would destroy the earth, you probably couldn't get a patent on that because that's not useful, that's destructive. But usually utility is easy to show. Um, and it, the fact that it functions is taken for granted. You don't have to prove that because you don't have to come up with a working model, but it's assumed. The other one is you have to be the inventor of it. That is, you have to be the one that came up with the idea. You couldn't have copied it from someone else. And then the other two criteria are non-obviousness and novelty. Novelty means that it's new. No one's done the exact same thing. And non-obviousness means that it might be new, but if it's obvious in view of what other people were doing, everyone's selling yellow cars and you come up with a red car, it's obvious just, just to change the color. So you couldn't get a patent on a red car. That that change wouldn't be non-obvious enough. Or in Europe, it's called the inventive step. So basically, if you can prior art, previous working devices that are publicly known or publications like articles or journals or scientific papers or patents themselves, which are published, these serve as a record that someone else already knew about this idea and it was publicly known. And your invention is obvious in view of that, shouldn't be granted. So if you, if you show these patent office prior art that, and you come up with an argument why this new patent application is obvious in view of that prior art, then the patent office can be persuaded not to grant it or to invalidate one that was already granted. I see. And in terms of defending against these kinds of patent troll organizations, is there some kind of asymmetry here where basically they only have to slip through one time in terms of a patent because then they can just go after some Bitcoin business and basically hold them by the balls, basically, because they've got this one patent that they're going to try to nail you on and try to extract some uh, rents out of you for it, right? Yeah, for two reasons and for three in the case of patent trolls. So one reason is extremely expensive to defend against such a suit. Okay, So if you're sued by someone, it's, it's going to take hundreds of thousands of dollars or maybe even more to defend it. And in the case of patent trolls, they have nothing to lose by suing you because you can't sue them back. And then the other reason is once a patent is granted, it has what's called a presumption of validity. And the idea is that the patent offices of these countries are staffed with technical so-called experts, and they know this field. And if they say it's novel and non 
obvious, then it really must be. So the patent is presumed to be valid, which means the burden is on the defendant now to invalidate the patent. So even if the patent shouldn't have been granted, and it, it really is obvious, and you could prove it with uh, millions of dollars of defense attorneys proving it at a trial, uh, you still have to overcome the burden of proof, which gives another advantage to the patent holder once it's granted and it's past the window where you could challenge it. So that is uh, that is why it's stacked against the defendants who are like sitting ducks and they could be victimized by the patent holders and the patent trolls. And that's a, a major motivating factor for us. If you look at the cost benefit, I mean, it'll be somewhere between ten and thirty thousand dollars probably to to nip some of these patents in the bud before they're granted. Um, whereas if they are granted, one action could be, as, as Stefan just said, hundreds of thousands of dollars for the victim. So the cost benefit is a no brainer at this point to fight these patents. And um, back on on what you first said, said Stefan, on how we're operating. I mean, crowdsourcing prior art is something that we'd like to do within the community, and that. That brings me to an important point. I mean, if you look at what's happening in the blockchain space and, and Bitcoin and crypto space right now, people are patenting stuff that would be like trying to file patents on TCP IP in the 90s. Um, there's no, And this is because there's no organization behind Bitcoin. There's no company behind Bitcoin. There's nobody to defend it except us. Um, and, and, you know, there was DARPA with TCP IP making sure that all of this stuff was in, in the public domain, all these new protocols. And that's not happening here. So it's up to us to to stop this right now and to make sure that the technology stays as public as it is and as and let me just say one thing too just as a disclaimer um, not everyone in our group is a radical uh, anarcho-capitalist uh, IP abolitionist like I am um, but all of us are against the patent abuse right the threat of, of, of bad patents patents that shouldn't have been granted and abuse by patent trolls and patent pirates that are going to be shakedown artists so um, our, our narrow focus in this group is to is we, we want to use crowdsourcing people in the community who know this technology to help identify patents that are harmful and emerging and also to identify all the prior art, gradually build up a database of prior art that pertains to these different technology areas that we then can use donations and funding from these companies. Uh, pretty modest, right? Jed said the cost is pretty modest, but to hire patent attorneys in the key countries to challenge the patents that are really ripe for challenging, uh, to start establishing some precedents. And uh, you know, once a company has a bunch of patents, Patents, a lot of them are fluff. So you pick the juiciest ones that are the biggest threats and the ones you can easily easily get stricken down. And that starts building up a case against their whole portfolio. I see. Yeah. And so in terms of prior art, what is normally required to prove that? Is it, could it, I mean, in the, in the Bitcoin world, it's, it could be on some prior earlier technology that maybe, or some concept that was disclosed on a mailing list or a forum post, or um, are, the, are those examples of prior art? Anything that's a, pu a, a publication, right, that you can find that is accessible to the general public. So it's in the old days, it used to be uh, journals and articles and brochures even for products and the products themselves and the, the publicly revealed details and also patent applications that are published uh, and patents that are published. So anything published can serve as prior art. And is the focus here mainly in the US or are you looking internationally as well? Definitely internationally. I'm, I'm based in Europe and uh, about half the group is, is uh, European. We have both uh, US and European patent attorneys in the group. 
That's great. Um, yeah, and I, I, we have be good if we had some examples at hand, and I'll try to try to find one where we're talking. But we've already identified some patents to start looking at. And what you would do is you would look at the claim of the patent. So the way that a claim, a patent is written, it has a title, has a summary, has a detailed description with drawings, which describes all the background and what you need to know to do it yourself later when the patent expires. But the heart of the patent is the claims. It's a, it's a numbered series of sentences, starting from number one to number twenty or whatever, and it'll say something like, um, you know, a method or an apparatus for doing the following, comprising the following elements, and it'll list them, A, B, and C. And that is what is the property right being claimed by the patent. So if element one is you know, a cryptocurrency system having a blockchain, number one, having element B and having some kind of short signature feature, something like that, then what you would try to do is, like if someone tried to patent short signatures now, they wouldn't be able to because that was already patented and the patent has just expired or something like that. Um, so you, would, you could produce that as prior art. Um, so you would tell you would tell our, our the people interested in this to help us look help us find papers help us find well-known practices help us find uh, examples that are similar to the elements that are being claimed in these in these dangerous patents here and provide the uh, provide these articles and we would collect them and they could be submitted to the patent offices so that the examiner would have to review them and compare them to what's being claimed in these patents so in terms of identifying and prior art includes code yeah open source code and I, I I'm pretty convinced that the patent offices are not conducting a, an exhaustive review of existing open source code before granting. Yeah, so there's all these areas that maybe they're not looking and they should be. Um, so also, Stefan, you mentioned earlier about dangerous applications, if you will. So what are some of the ways that you're able to identify which, you know, which kinds of patent applications are more dangerous in that sense? Uh, well, maybe Jed has some thoughts on this too. But uh, the ones that the ones that would go to the heart of what existing crypto companies need to do, right, to improve to improve uh, the blockchain or the code or the architecture or business even business models around it. Jed, do you have any particular thoughts on that? No, it's pretty much the space. I mean, it's it's um, yeah. If anyone could could get leverage on a core component, or for example, new hash algorithms that'll need to be developed that are quantum resistant, this kind of thing, it's also feasible that that patents could render it impossible to protect the blockchain because the the new cryptography is all patented. Yeah, so that's certainly um, interesting uh, and, and things that people have to think about. And I think another point that might be good to cover is this idea that companies might be okay for now, but the factor or the risk comes in once they get bigger, because now they've got something to go after for the, from the patent trolls point of view. Exactly. That's it. And I started thinking about this problem actually um, several years ago, and it became painfully obvious to me when we had this uh, ICO boom in 2017. I mean, here you had a bunch of startups that were publishing white papers um, of what they intended to do, and then were raising you know, $30, $40 million. It was like, I'm really surprised. I guess the patents just weren't granted yet, uh, that none of them were trolled at that point because they were big, fat, juicy targets, and, and they published a exactly what they intended to do. So, but I had expected to see more patent trolling then, but I think it's just that there were only a few hundred patents granted at that point on blockchain uh, related technologies. So when a patent troll goes after you, what's the normal process there? What does it look like when the patent troll is going after a you know, normal Bitcoin or uh, entrepreneur? 
in the say for normal competitors, when when someone has a patent and they go after you, what they unless they're ready to sue you right off the bat, what they what they usually want to do is they want to um, they want to they want to be able to pick their jurisdiction. So they don't want to give you they don't want to make a threat. If they make a threat, then you could sue first with a declaratory judgment action and choose the forum. So they try to word it nicely. They'll send you a letter saying, "Hi, we see you're in this space. Uh, we thought you might like to be aware of these patents that we have rights to. And if you're interested in discussing a negotiate a license, please let us." No. So they're not threatening to sue you, but the threat is really there. Now, patent troll doesn't have as much fear because you really can't counter sue them first, but even they approach you gingerly and usually they just want to so-called wet their beak. Like they just want a license. You know, they don't they don't want to shut you down like some of your competitors might. But again, they'll they'll say we have these patents, you might find it useful to have a license on them. And so they'll invite you to negotiate a license with that's how they usually do it. I see. And so I guess the difference as well is when it's competitors going after each other, they've got a war chest and they sort of are like nations at war. And then sometimes they just sort of give a little bit here, take a little bit there and say, OK, fine, we'll let you kind of use this one so you don't sue me on this one. That kind of dynamic, right? Yeah. What happens is um, they usually have a long drawn out lawsuit and they spend millions of dollars on attorneys. And then they finally settle like uh, Apple and uh, uh, Samsung. And of course, all they do is they pass the cost down to the consumers in terms of higher prices. But what happens is small companies can't enter that fray. So they, they're dissuaded from ever entering in the first place that field, which is why you have a small number of smartphone makers. So it kind of creates oligopolies and cartels in a sense. But with patent trolls, they basically, they're like, think of them like the tax man. They, they're coming at you. They want a little, they want a little cut. So the cost that Jed mentioned earlier, Earlier, the cost of defending the suit is not just the cost of defending. That's even if you win. But if you lose, you've, you you had to defend yourself and you might have to pay their attorney's fees. And then you have to pay a royalty for you know 15 years or something like that, which will hurt your business model because they're not the only patent troll that's going to come after you. There could be a dozen or a hundred that might come after you after that. And each one you're paying 2% royalties to, right? Which makes some business models increasingly non-viable. So in terms of what can be done, uh, what are the main ways that people can um, counter this kind of thing? Oh, and actually one other point that uh, people might be thinking is what about just open source licensing? Maybe if they just stay only to using things that are already out there in the open, uh, does that protect them? It's pretty hard to innovate if you don't write any code, if you just use what's already there. So um, yeah, you, you should definitely build on open source and you should definitely open source. There's no doubt about it. But um, when you're when you're innovating, you're going to be writing new code and you're going to be doing new things. Um, and those are, are what are going to get attacked uh, because someone will claim that they did it first and they have the rights. Yeah. And as a practical matter, most patents that are so-called infringed, they're not really done because the infringer knocks off or rips off or copies what some other company did. They don't even know about these patents. They just happen to innovate something that is the common sense thing to do to solve this problem. And someone else has filed a patent on a similar enough idea that they stumble into this this landmine. And um, actually, Stefan, I'm also curious, you were calling out a point earlier around how, in some sense, the existence of of these intellectual property laws drives a kind of centralization into large competitors because they're the only ones who can afford to play this game and fight those battles. Would you say that's arguably happened in terms of social media as well? I think you could make an argument for there. I think in that case, it's probably more due to copyright than patent. So, um, uh, I mean, Microsoft's, their vast wealth and holdings is due in part to their copyright over their code all these years and the operating system. Google as well, to an extent. Um, Facebook, 
Facebook, I mean, if you could copy Facebook business model and the way their software works, then you could have, it would be more easier to have a competitor to Facebook, um, which is blocked now. And also Facebook might not have as much money in the first place uh, to grow as large if they didn't have some monopoly rents coming in from patent and, and primarily copyright. And so in terms of the different intellectual property types, um, I presume then the focus here is mainly around patents, right? It's not around other types of intellectual property. For COPA, that's that's uh, Open Crypto Alliance and COPA and LotNet are all focused on patents. That is really where the the, the problem lies with innovation. Um, copyright, I'll let Stefan answer that on the other types of IP. Yeah, although of course there's some there's some copyright threats being bandied about right now about the white paper, uh, which is another IP type threat to certain players in the Bitcoin system. But yeah, our primary focus, our only focus, is patents because this is the big threat right now. Um, yeah, I had a thought about that copyright threat that's being bandied around right now. Um, if if uh, a copyright is asserted on that paper, uh, does that take it out of prior art? No. So uh, the prior art just means it's published and, and known, so it could be used as prior art as well. And by the way, other types of IP or play here too, like trademark mm -hmm. and defamation, which have been some defamation suits have been filed as well. But uh, in trademark, if you remember, there have been there there were there were threats to use trademark to say that the BTC guys couldn't call their their chain big Bitcoin because someone else claimed a trademark in that name. So there's lots of threats from IP to various aspects of the crypto space. But the biggest one by far, I think, is is patent, especially um, the emerging the emerging number of patents that have been filed in the last couple of years. Jet said. Yeah, so I guess to summarize then, some of the key impacts really are mostly, as you're saying, around patents. And this may impact the possibility for Bitcoin businesses because it might stop them offering certain features or it may stop development along certain lines of approach, uh, whether that is the cryptography used or whether that is some other feature that a Bitcoin business is trying to offer. Um, so I guess just bringing it to into, uh, what people can do about it in terms of you know trying to stop this essentially, uh, what's the ask here in terms of OCA? Is it funding? Is it other kinds of support? What are you looking for? Funding is is what we need to get going. I mean, that's that's uh, the, the gas that's going to make this car go. We need uh, visibility. We need people to understand. So we, we need um, people to self-educate, to come to us. We're, we're totally open. Um, and, and to understand the risks. I mean, there, there are a lot of people in the space that are simply anti-patent. They're open source. And and, and that's great, but as Stefan said, they're going to stumble into a mine at some point if they don't if they don't pay attention to it now. And so, raising awareness and getting the word out. But obviously, in order for us to accomplish what we would like to accomplish, we can't do that without financial support. And you could, you know, you, you could have um, you could have also an adjunct to that. Um, there is a streak among the Bitcoin community. We want this thing to work and to grow. And there's a strong streak of hostility towards this closed uh, mentality. You know, some companies have voluntarily stopped doing that. Like uh, Tesla announced that, you know, they're not going to assert their patents because they want the electric car industry to grow. So they're a bigger slice of a huge pie. And I think Twitter several years ago did something where they made an agreement with all their employees uh, where... Uh, uh, they tried to shackle, tie their own hands. Twitter said, we're not going to be a, a patent threat to anyone. We're just going to have our patents for defensive reasons. And the way they tied their hands was they made a, a, an agreement with their employees. Every employee who invents an invention that the company owns, the company would have to get that employee's permission to sue someone with the patent aggressively. So in other words, they're, they're trying to say we're not a patent threat. And I, I would think that some developers who are even working for some of the companies that are acquiring these patents are not in favor of this kind of uh, aggressive use of 
patents and the threat of patents, pressure could be used by them to put to try to dissuade these companies from from acquiring or using these patents in a threatening way. Okay, so um, in terms of where listeners can uh, find you guys online, where can they find Open Crypto Alliance? OpenCryptoAlliance.org, all one word. Um, it's the best place to find us. You can also find us on social, but the website's the best place to start. Excellent. Uh, and for anyone who wants to find you guys, where can they find you? You can find me on LinkedIn um, or on my business, but uh, LinkedIn is easy enough. If you do want to connect to me on LinkedIn, please do put a note and uh, say you heard me on this podcast and I will accept your invitation. Excellent. And you, Stefan? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm at NS Kinsella on Twitter and Facebook, and I have a, my website is stephankinsella.com. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, guys. And uh, I think um, I'm hopeful that uh, we see some uh, response from the community around uh, stop, stopping these uh, patent trolls before they get too big. That would be great. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having us. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 249, and I will see you in the Citadels. 